1: When Howard Mechanic stepped off the bus in Tempe, Arizona, his life in St. Louis was in the rearview mirror. The manipulations of the FBI, the confidential informants, the jump bail, the friendships, his dream of law school, those were gone too.
2: I got off the bus and it was a warm day and uh, I just had what I could carry. I had a backpack and I had uh, my boom box and Arizona and Tempe, there's a lot of people who come in and go out, a lot of transients. Everybody's new, so you don't need to have a big history.
1: The FBI had laid a trap to stop the arsons and send a message. Howard had slipped through. Now, he was starting over. But as a fugitive, your past is never fully behind you. I'm Nina Gildan Seavey, and this is My Fugitive. took his time setting up his new life. He sold his car and his childhood stamp collection, so he had about $4,000 in his pocket. There was no immediate pressure to get a job. He audited a class at Arizona State on organic gardening. He hung out at the library, reading books about plants. After a few months, Howard found a way to be in touch with his family, but not directly. That wasn't safe for anyone.
3: For the first time he called, I happened to be at my parents' home.
1: That's Marilyn Goldfein, Howard's older
3: sister. He called my mother's best friend, Aunt Rose. I think he called her from a pay phone and told her to have my parents come over there the following Sunday, and he would call at a certain time.
1: When people asked about Howard, his family would play dumb. Howard's dad, Bud, was interviewed once on TV about Howard, and he cried and said every time he saw someone begging on the street, he wondered if Howard was in that situation. Marilyn's friends would ask, and she'd lie to them too.
3: I just said I hadn't heard from him. And I always felt they were very sympathetic and it felt bad for me, and especially for my parents. Because they knew my parents were never the same. My parents never celebrated the Jewish holidays after that. They didn't want to be with family at a time when everyone else was rejoicing.
1: Howard's family slowly adapted to this new way of life. And Howard did, too. When he met new people, he introduced himself as Gary Treadway, the name on his new fake documents. He opened a bank account as Gary Treadway, got a passport as Gary Treadway. Eventually, he'd buy property and get married as Gary Treadway. As his money started to run out, Howard got a job at a health food store. Luckily, they didn't do a background check. He also started his own natural food company, distributing things like vitamin supplements. And then, in July of 1973, he went to a health food convention in San Diego. The first two days went smoothly. He moved around the convention, picking up products, trying them out, talking to other distributors. On the third day, he looked up.
2: And I saw Ben Zaracor standing there, probably about 30 feet away.
1: Ben Zarecor was a friend of Howard's from Washington University. In fact, they were together on the night of May 4, 1970. They were both at a professor's house that night. As the riot began, the professor urged them not to go. They were both on an injunction barring them from campus protests. Ben took his advice and stayed put. Howard didn't. Now, here was Ben, standing in front of him at this convention in San Diego. Howard tried to hide.
2: So I went down the other aisle and tried to go in the other direction. But he had seen me and followed me over.
1: Howard was stuck.
2: So I pat him on the shoulder and said, why don't we come over here? So we sort of got away from the crowd. Then we started uh, chatting a little bit.
1: Ben asked him what he was doing there, how he was doing. Howard was pretty sure he could trust Ben. He explained that he was living in Tempe now, that he had a new life, that he'd started a health food business. It turned out that Ben had a new company too, called Famali, an urban tea company that he'd started with his wife, Louise. Eventually, it became a very big business, the Good Earth Tea Company. Ben and Howard began to grow their businesses side by side.
2: They probably understood that there was some risk to them. They knew what they were doing, but we were friends, and, you know, friends stick together, and that's the way it was.
1: A few years ago, Ben told me that they thought if they were careful and never mentioned Howard's true identity, that they would have nothing to fear. But Howard was a convicted felon on the run. Everyone who helped him, who housed him, who knew where he was and didn't turn him in, they were putting themselves at risk. Over the years, Howard and Ben and Louise fell into a kind of rhythm. Howard would spend the winters in Arizona. When summer came, he'd head to Santa Cruz to stay with the Zeracors. A couple of years in, a big opportunity came their way.
2: Louise had written a book about uh, ginseng.
1: Ginseng, the root. Now it's relatively common. Back then, it hadn't yet become a fad in America.
2: And she wrote a letter to China because they have an export commodities fair twice a year. And um, he said, well, we're into the ginseng business. We wrote this book, and we like to come over there. And, and we were the first company invited to go over to the export commodities fair from the United States.
1: Traveling to China was hard in the early 1970s. Really hard. Trade between the U.S. and China was just opening up after Richard Nixon visited in 72. The so-called Bamboo Curtain was beginning to lift. Ben, Louise, and Howard had an invitation from the Chinese government. But Howard had a problem. His passport, Gary Treadway's passport and driver's license, had recently been stolen.
2: It was three weeks before we're going to China, and I had no passport, no driver's license. I had nothing. And so i contact a passport agency and say, you need to get a passport pretty quick here. I had my passport stolen. He said, you need to provide some documents. I had no documents.
1: So he asked them, is there anything else I can do? And they tell him, well, you can bring in someone to confirm that you are who you say you
2: are. So I got somebody who worked with Ben just to come in, and he just signed a piece of paper saying, I am Gary Treadway. To Howard's surprise, it worked. That was sort of amazing that that's all I needed to get a, a duplicate passport. So I got the passport you know, about a week before we went to China. And uh, we were able to go on that trip.
1: Howard had a new passport, but in his first few years as a fugitive, official documents were an ongoing problem.
2: I think it was the next year I was in Santa Cruz and got a letter from Social Security Administration.
1: The letter said that two people were using the same Social Security number.
2: So I'm freaking out here. The guy who gave me those identification documents back in St. Louis, Gary Raymond Treadway, he told me it was a new social security number.
1: But it wasn't. Gary Raymond Treadway, the actual Gary Raymond Treadway, was alive and well and living in St. Louis and using his social security number, which meant Howard had a problem.
2: Well, I don't want to stop living as Gary Treadway and star all over again.
1: When they contacted him, the Social Security Administration asked Howard, a.k.a. Gary, to tell them where he was born and what his birth date was. So he came up with a plan.
2: What I did was, I had access to the employee records at Fomali and Santa Cruz, and uh, I knew one guy who was working there was about my age. And so I was talking to him, and, you know, how long have you been working here? He says, well, I've been working here about five years. And I say, oh, yeah where are you from? And said, L.A. I said, were you born in L.A.? And he said, yeah, I was born in L.A.
1: Now, Howard has extracted all the information he needs from his colleague. He writes a letter to the Vital Records Office in Los Angeles, asking for the birth
2: certificate of this other guy. So I got the guy's birth certificate from Los Angeles. It was typed in 1948, and they had a certain type of font from the typewriter that was back in 1948. So what I'm figuring to do, I'm going to change the name, take his name off and put in Gary Robert Treadway
1: Gary Robert Treadway as opposed to his current fake name Gary Raymond Treadway but he needs just the right typewriter to match the font
2: so I went to thrift stores looking for old typewriters and it was no luck I was about ready to give up he tries one
1: last store the fourth one he's tried and he finds a match
2: so I bought it for eight bucks and took it home and I whited out his name and put my name, but obviously that is not gonna pass. I knew a guy who was a printer. I figured he can shoot this and print it. We were all hippies and I figured he's not gonna be turning me in. And he said, well, I can do that uh, for 50 bucks. And I said, okay. But then he took it in and he said, well, I looked at it closely. It's got this blue seal of the county of Los Angeles. And we can't shoot that blue very easily. I need to get my photographer involved in this. So now I'm getting way over my head.
1: Every new person involved in this scheme was another chance to blow Howard's cover. But he didn't have much choice. He needed the photographer, even if it was risky.
2: So the guy said he'll do it for two (laughs) six-packs. So I
1: said, okay, go ahead and do that. The counterfeit birth certificate worked. Howard Mechanic was now Gary Robert Treadway. And that's who he would be for the next two decades. For Howard, all of this effort, all the deceit, stealing personal information from colleagues, lying to friends, for him, it was just a matter of survival.
2: I was just forced to do it. I mean, that was what I had to do. It wasn't hurting anybody. I was still a nice kid. It wasn't like I was do anything bad. As far as I'm concerned, I never did anything really bad.
1: The documents were only part of Howard's survival strategy. Another piece was keeping new people at a distance. Never get too close.
2: There was a few years there where I didn't have any close intimate relationships because I had to stay away from people. I mean, I couldn't be buddy-buddies, and they ask a lot of questions.
1: But that's a lonely life. More after the break.
0: You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. In
1: 1977, Howard met a college student named Ingrid Gold. They started dating. And at first, he gave her the same lies he gave everyone else.
2: I had a story about my parents were killed, and they were hit by a drunk driver, and I had no siblings. People started asking questions, I would change the subject.
1: As Ingrid and Howard got more serious, he decided to tell her the truth, that he wasn't Gary Treadway, but Howard Mechanic. She took it in stride. Her family had been active against the war. Ingrid joined the list of accomplices which meant Howard could introduce her to his family. By now, his parents and siblings were visiting him regularly in Arizona.
3: In the beginning, he was still very, very guarded, and so were they. I remember that I didn't meet his brother at first because they considered it too much of a risk for both of the boys looking the same to be together.
1: Because Howard and his brother Harvey are identical twins. Seeing them together would raise a lot of questions. No way to pass him off as a cousin. They just look too much alike. In 1980, Ingrid and Howard get married. Soon after, they have a son.
3: When I was pregnant with Ari, the question became, what would the baby's last name be? I didn't want to give him the last name Treadway because Treadway was a made-up name. It wasn't his real name. So we gave the baby, Ari, the last name Gold, which is my birth name, my maiden name.
1: Ingrid and Howard got divorced in 1984 when Ari was three but the two stayed friendly. Ari's childhood seemed pretty normal, at least on the surface. He spent time with Howard's parents, but he was told that they were an aunt and an uncle, not his grandparents.
5: I would say it was insanely normal with my dad's extended family. I didn't know know, the exact relationship, and when I would ask my dad, he would kind of make it fuzzy, a fuzzy answer.
1: When Ari met Harvey, he was introduced as his father's cousin, not as his twin brother:
5: I knew my uncle Harvey before I knew he was my dad's brother, but at some point they thought I would figure out they, he was my dad's twin, so I think at some point, I didn't see him as frequently, or because yeah, I remember one day I was like we were, walk, we were all walking, and I made my dad and my uncle stand next to each other. And I was like, "If you cut your hair a little bit and if you did this, then you would look exactly the same.
2: It got to a point where, you know, he was asking questions about things, and I felt he was old enough to know the story.
1: Which he delivered to Ari with an odd sense of ceremony, when Ari was 12.
5: When he told me the story, he dimmed the lights. And that said something, like setting the stage for, like, the gravity of what he's about to tell me.
2: I showed him a film called Berkeley in the 60s to show him what things were like back then, because. Really, my story is not understandable outside of the context of the the 60s. We saw the movie, and I said, You know, I want to talk about this movie and some of the things in there. And told them I was demonstrating against the war, and we were trying to stop the war. And they charged me with crime, and I was convicted on something I didn't do. And I served a sentence, and then they charged me again. I decided I wasn't going to serve a sentence, so I started living under another name.
5: I don't know, for me, it wasn't like him telling me this. It didn't really, um, I don't. It, it didn't really change anything because it's like, it was, all, it was just, um, <laughs> I don't know why I wanna, why it's ch- choking me up a little bit. But I would say when I was 12 and he told me this story, it wasn't like shocking. It didn't change anything. I always knew my dad as my dad. So it didn't matter to me that like, okay, this isn't your real name. Your real name is a different name.
1: That's a big secret to tell a 12 year old boy. If Ari said anything to anyone, his father could go to jail for a very long time. But Ari never said a word. In 1994, Howard's life looked very different than it did when he got off the bus with his backpack and his boombox. He had a teenage son. He'd gotten into real estate. He was running a low-budget extended-stay hotel called The Abode. And he had a new girlfriend, Janet Grossman.
6: I had answered his personal ad in the Phoenix New Times. He was looking for a non-smoking vegetarian progressive social activist sort who was younger than him.
2: When I met Janet, we had first date and uh well it wasn't a date. We had tea and talked and chatted. We talked for like three hours. We got along so well. Then she goes home and she calls her best friend.
6: And I said to her something along the lines of, I met this guy and I think he's the one. And the only issue that I can tell is that he just doesn't feel like a Gary to me.
1: But Howard didn't share his real identity with Janet,
2: which meant that she was in the dark on the day police showed up at the abode. I was operating that apartment hotel. And if somebody doesn't pay their bill under Arizona law, you can lock the door. And I had somebody who didn't pay their bill. So we locked the apartment. I told my employee to, you know, pack it up. We're gonna put it in storage. The guy came, it was only like three or four days later, I think, and paid his bill and pick up his stuff. I said, okay, here's your stuff. And he was missing a sword. He had a collector's sword. So he calls the cops. So the cops come up. Where's this guy's sword? He, had, he said he had a sword in the apartment. And I said, we, we stored everything in there. The cops said, yeah, that's considered a valuable item. It's not there, and then he says, "You know, we're, we're going to have to take you in or so take somebody in for this." So I said, "Well, my employee packed it up. Let me call him up." So I call the employee up. He's not there. His answer machine. Leave a message. Call me as soon as possible. The cops are here. They're looking for a sword. So I tell the cop, "Yeah, I left a message. The guy will call me back." You know, i just trying to buy some time. So then, after about five minutes, the cop says turn around and puts my hands behind my back, puts the cuffs on, puts me in the car. And I figured this is the end, you know, they bring me in, they'll fingerprint me and that'll be the end of it. Never changed my fingerprints. That was a possibility I thought about, but I never did.
1: Ari and Janet were there watching.
6: It was like Friday night and we were both really upset, of course. Ari said to me, don't let them take my dad to jail. And of course, I was doing everything I could think of at the moment to prevent that anyway, but I didn't know what would happen if he got taken in and fingerprinted and all that.
1: Because Janet didn't know that her boyfriend was a wanted fugitive, but Ari did. The police put Howard in the car.
2: Driving down the alley, get about half a block away, and it's a good thing I had a strong signal on my cordless phone, because the phone's in my back pocket. A cordless phone, not a cell phone. It has a short range from its base. And it rings. And I tell the cop, stop. He's calling back right now. So somehow I get the phone out with my hands behind my back, and I'm able to answer before it stops ringing. <laughs> it's the guy who's working for me, and the guy says, I've got the sword, I'll bring it down. So the cop turned around, and, and the guy came with the sword, and took him in. So that was one of the closer calls I had.
6: I didn't know that that was anything more than a really nasty situation that that turned out okay. But I didn't know how nasty it could have been.
1: It wasn't until a year later, three years into their relationship, that Howard finally told Janet the truth of who he was.
6: He did over time explain the whole thing to me of course that I had been too young for being involved in demonstrations about the Vietnam War but my mother especially was an anti-war activist. so you know it was like none of this was foreign to me. it was just that his name, birth date and social security number were all wrong. but he was absolutely who he was.
1: As the years passed, Howard and his family managed to construct a fairly normal relationship. His mom, dad, and siblings could come visit him and Janet at the abode. Howard would introduce them to people as his aunt, uncle, and cousins. And this life worked for the most part. Until 1994, when Howard's mother Rose died. For over 20 years, the challenges of Howard's life as a fugitive had been mostly logistics. But this
2: was something else. I wasn't there at the funeral. I saw her while she was alive, and we were able to spend some good time together. I mean, that was clear I couldn't go to that funeral.
1: He couldn't be with his mother when she died. She couldn't see her son on her deathbed. And while Howard wasn't at Rose's funeral, the U.S. Marshals were.
3: There was someone off in the distance, and when I saw someone I didn't know, I thought, well, that's weird.
1: That's Marilyn, Howard's sister.
3: My parents were in their 70s, and I knew everybody they knew, and he didn't come up and be with the group. So I looked at this person off in the distance in a suit, and I went, hmm,
4: who's that? We did surveil at her funeral. We did surveil at the family at the time.
1: U.S. Marshal Bill Presson was the primary investigator on Howard's case. When they picked it up, they didn't have a lot to go on, Presson said.
4: We got basic information from the FBI, the warrant, you know, the basic circumstances and anything that wasn't classified, which was nothing. Everything was classified.
1: For the most part, Howard's case just wasn't all that exciting.
4: It was a dog, as we call it, because there wasn't much to it. I mean, the the really only interesting piece was the length of time that the guy had been missing was, of course, a significant thing. And what he was charged with and that he had a twin brother that kept showing up everywhere.
1: Again... Howard and Harvey are identical twins. So as they aged, people like Bill Presson could look at images of Harvey and know exactly what Howard would look like, which caused some trouble for Harvey over the years.
2: Let's say you're speeding. They pull you over. They say, okay, license and registration. They put in a birth date and a a last name. That's enough to think, oh, this guy is wanted. So they pull me in. They wouldn't just give me a ticket, they'd take me in for fingerprinting every time. Then I decided, this is too much of a hassle, I'm just going to get a different ID. So I got one from somebody, a friend, who wasn't a driver.
1: Now both the mechanic brothers have fake names. One a fugitive, the other, his exasperated body double. The mechanics knew they were being watched. They were also just trying to live like a regular American family which, of course, in many ways they were. It had all become so normal over the decades. The calls from pay phones, the fake identities, a U.S. marshal at the funeral. You can get used to anything if you do it for long enough. But that's when you start to make mistakes.
2: My name is Gary Treadway. I live in Scottsdale. I also have a small business here, uh, Madam mayor and, and council members. Uh, first of all, I sent you an email, I hope you read that,
1: When Howard first arrived in Arizona, he kept everyone at arm's length. Now, more than 20 years later, he was a prominent member of the community, running his business and organizing around environmental issues, even speaking at city council meetings, some of which were aired on local television.
2: I was on there talking about clean elections on a couple occasions.
1: This was an obvious risk, as Howard and Janet knew.
6: We had the conversation maybe once before the first time he appeared. And I expressed some concerns about it and he had some concerns about it too, but he was the best person to be talking on the issue (laughs) and nothing bad came of it. So I think we both felt like it was okay and it just kept happening.
1: But little did they know, the U.S. Marshals were getting closer. Marshal Presson.
4: Some of our investigations had led us down into the Phoenix area on some leads. And they weren't as conclusive as I really would have liked. But it was a persistent lead. You know, this little piece of evidence just kept pushing us back toward Arizona. In 1999,
1: with the marshals on his tail, Howard takes his biggest risk in almost 30 years. And uh,
2: people asked me to run for city council.
6: (laughs) And I definitely said, I think that's a terrible idea in terms of your cover. And he said, you know, oh, it'll be fine, basically. And um, I said, well, I have definite fears about this and I don't think it's a good idea, but I do think that you'll be great on the council. And so if you are determined that you're going to run, I'll support that. And that's what he did.
1: Howard was not entirely oblivious to the dangers.
2: There's one committee that was supporting uh, my candidacy and he said there was a problem several years ago with some candidate and something came out after the campaign was already going and I mean, it really ruined the candidate and is there anything in my past that is c- going to possibly cause a problem and I said no and uh, that was a mistake for me to agree but I just uh, continued on a certain path, and it was like, you're on a train, and you stay on the train. And that's that's what happened.
1: As the campaign train sped along, a local reporter reached out to Howard.
2: Their reporter had come out initially to do tough pieces about all the candidates, and she came out to the apartment hotel. We sat out by the pool and talked about various things, and she had written her thesis on Kent State, and... I don't know how that subject came up. I told her I was against the war, and that's nothing special.
1: What an odd coincidence that this reporter, Penny Overton, had written her thesis on the shootings at Kent State, the killings that had sparked the riot at Washington University, the riot that had led to Howard's arrest, trial, and flight.
2: Then we finished up the interview, and she said, you know, we just, this is just the introductory story. We're going to Follow up. We always do a detailed background check on all the candidates and follow up on their background. And at that time, I you know realized I was in a bad situation. What I told her is I went to a college that it had gone out of business, and I figured they won't be able to verify that.
1: The paper checked the records of the school, and Gary Treadway's name was nowhere to be found.
2: She started asking some other questions, and I asked her to come out. I wanted to talk to her about something and uh, I told her the truth, that I'm not Gary Treadway. I told her that I was living under assumed name and that they charged me with something I didn't do and I had to live under another name. And uh, if you publish this, I'll be going to straight jail. I'm not gonna get any bond. I've already been convicted and sentenced to five years.
1: Howard didn't tell Penny who he really was, but he figured that Penny might be sympathetic towards his situation. Maybe her thesis would help her understand. Maybe she'd give him a break.
2: And told her, hopefully you don't write this.
1: Penny didn't publish a story right away, which left Howard scrambling and panicked.
2: I figured I'll just see if I can just get out of the campaign, and I made up a story.
1: He sent out an email to the press and his supporters saying that he had leukemia, that he was dropping out of the race.
2: And I... Had done that logically because I looked up to see what disease is not visible. And that was one that is believable that I could have that. And that's what I, you know, used as, as the excuse.
1: When I think about Howard's decision now, there's a kind of poetic irony in his choice to say that he had leukemia. Although Howard didn't know it, that was the disease my father was dying of at the time. Howard's lie backfired. It didn't sit right with Penny Overton. And rather than letting the story go, she decided to look deeper. In early February, I got a call at my house just outside of Washington, D.C. The woman on the line said she was looking for Lewis Gilden, my father. I asked why. She said she was a reporter for the Scottsdale Tribune, and she wanted to talk to him. And then she asked me if I knew a man named Gary Treadway. Again, I asked why, and she said, or Howard Mechanic, do you know a man named Howard Mechanic? Her question literally took my breath away. I felt paralyzed and panicked. I was afraid for myself and for my father. She told me that she believed Gary Treadway and Howard Mechanic were one and the same. At that point, it had been about two years since my last communication with Howard. I'd never spoken with him but I'd sent letters through intermediaries. I can't speak to that, I told her. I don't know. And I hung up. When Howard found out that the Scottsdale Tribune was going to publish Penny Overton's story, he and Janet made a difficult decision.
2: I immediately decided I wasn't gonna live under another name. I was gonna turn myself in.
1: They needed to put things in order, to get a lawyer and had Janet as a signatory on Howard's bank accounts so that she could manage his businesses while he was locked up.
6: And so we ended up taking off at midnight and went to a motel in my name and were driving my car. He was wearing a goofy hat the whole time.
1: The next morning, Howard and Janet pulled over to get some food
6: and we started to get out of the car and then we noticed the, the newspaper box right in front of where we were parked with his picture of him from college days with picture of council candidate on the top fold of the paper and we did not get anything to eat. We just left.
1: The headline read, Council Hopeful says life is lie.
6: I mean, we just basically spent three days driving around The Phoenix area, that was just three days from hell.
1: They knew it was just a matter of time before the authorities would come for Howard. His lawyer contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office in St. Louis, and he said that he was representing a fugitive who wanted to turn himself in.
2: At this point, there was no reason for the government to negotiate because they basically had me at that time. They didn't know the name, but... They had the picture and they had the Kent
4: State thing.
1: U.S. Marshal Bill Presson had been waiting for this moment for a long time.
4: Our call center received a phone call from Arizona asking if we were looking for Howard mechanic. And of course, it's the oldest case that we had at the time. he had been missing 28 years. So they called me at home in the middle of the night and said, hey, we need you to fly down there. So the next day, myself and the current case agent got on an airplane and we flew to Phoenix.
1: The next morning, Howard met Presson at an agreed-upon location.
4: Thursday afternoon in Phoenix, a 51-year-old businessman known as Gary Treadway was arrested for a 30-year-old crime committed in another era when he was Howard Mechanic, a 20 year old Washington. He got out of his, his lawyer's car. We got out of ours you know, identified ourselves. We ID'd him. We searched him, handcuffed him, and put him in a car. He read him his rights. Really, things like this, it's pretty low key. It was pretty anticlimactic.
2: It was very strange. I mean, when I went into the federal building and turned myself in, and uh, they asked, What's your name? I say, Howard Mechanic. And he said, What's his middle name? I say, Lawrence. And he says, how do you spell that? And I said, I'm not sure Was it was a W or a U. I, I didn't even remember how my middle name was spelled. The next day I was arraigned, and Janet came in to see me. And she said, it looked like there was a lightness on me because the load, it was a relief. Because I was carrying this for 28 years, and it was over. I was holding everything in for 28 years.
1: This time when my phone rang, an automated voice on the other end said, this is a collect call from the Arizona Department of Corrections. Do you accept the charges? For the first time, I was about to speak to the man who had hovered over almost my entire life. I was actually nervous. I accepted the charges. His voice cracked. Nina? Yes? He said, it's Howard Mechanic. Howard was calling me from prison in Florence, Arizona. On September 5, 2000, Dateline NBC aired a special on his case. Howard sat in the TV room with his fellow inmates. He watched as Larry Cogan, my father's other defendant, made a staggering confession. He was the one who threw the cherry bomb at the policeman on May 4, 1970, Cogan said. Not Howard. Howard's friends and family were determined to get him out of prison. The Free Howard Mechanic Movement was formed.
6: There was a whole group of activist types in Phoenix, and we had Free Howard rallies, and we wrote postcards, and I sent multiple overnight letters to President Clinton saying, pardon him, pardon him.
1: Ari got a petition signed on his college campus. Ben Zaracor and other former students from WashU rallied behind Howard. The rabble-rousers from Howard's past joined the activists from his present. My father died on Christmas Day in 2000. Just a few weeks later, on January 20th, 2001, on his last day in office, President Clinton granted Howard Mechanic a pardon. Giving Howard his freedom was seen by many at the time as a way of closing the book on the long, tortured history of the war in Vietnam and the resistance against it. In April 2001, Howard came to St. Louis for my father's memorial service. It was held on the Washington University campus, a return for all of us to the scene of the crime and a reckoning with it. Percy Green gave a eulogy, and so did Howard.
2: I'm sorry uh, there wasn't some closure for Lou on on this particular issue. This weekend is is sort of closure for us. A lot of people, and I didn't understand this when I came to town here, I've been carrying around a burden for 30 years. I didn't realize how many of my friends were carrying around the same burden. They felt that they lost one of their own. And I was lost for 30 years, and I'm sorry that I wasn't here uh, to see Lou. Lou also told, told uh, Nina that Howard won't ever return. He was wrong. I'm happy he was wrong on that one. When I got out of prison on, on a presidential pardon in January, one of the first things I thought about was how I was sorry that Lou wasn't here to see that. I'd like to give to his, his widow a copy of my pardon for Lou. <laughs>
1: My father was gone, and so was Gary Treadway. Howard Mechanic had his presidential pardon. We could all just have turned the page and moved on. But my job wasn't done yet. Next time on My Fugitive.
2: The documents prove for the first time that the FBI undertook a program in 1968 to harass and destroy new left political organizations whose views the federal police agency disagreed with.
0: There are enough people within the Senate who are determined to find out, and they decide to create this special committee, which becomes known as the Church
6: Committee. Senate investigators charge today that the FBI at one time sought to blackmail the late Martin Luther King into committing suicide. The evidence? Everything in the personal files was destroyed.
2: So Church actually backed down at least from pursuing the origins of that investigation.
1: My Fugitive is an original production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. You can binge all episodes from this series exclusively on the new Odyssey app. Odyssey has all the podcasts you crave, plus the music, news, and sports that matter to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play. This show is hosted by me, Nina Gilden Our producers are Kat Aaron, Agaranish Ashagre, Justine Daum, Janelle Anderson, and Maria Robbins Somerville, with additional production support from Sandra Ellen. The show is edited by Joel Lovell, with support from Maddie Sprung Kaiser. Research and fact checking by Charles Richter and Ben Phelan. Our engineers are Noriko Okabe, Hannes Brown, and Will Bigwood. This episode features original composition by Daoud Anthony, original music by David Einmo, as well as music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our executive producers, Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. And thank you to each of our guests for joining us to help tell this story. And for more about this show, including photographs, FBI documents, and more, follow us on Instagram at Podcast and visit our website at myfugitivepodcast.com.